0: So it's like there's a whole extra political season in Washington now. It's the fall book season. We've got we've got Romney. We've got uh, Frank Forr's book out on Biden. I mean, it's, you know, one hit after the next. I mean, are you surprised that Romney could spill the tea like this? I
1: have to say that is one that I'm really looking forward to, the excerpt. Uh, this is McKay Coppins uh, from The Atlantic who did it really. Uh, certainly, as excerpts go, that one was tantalizing because it's that rarity. Often you get access— And the person doesn't say anything. In this case, Romney, first of all, he announced this week, big, big news, he announced this week that he is not running again for the Senate. But in conjunction with that, you know, we read basically him dumping all over his Republican colleagues. And, oh, my God, Evan, some of those details were just killing me. Like, I personally (laughs) love the one where Trump goes— to the Senate Republican conference after the Mueller report, you know, and he's busy falsely claiming complete and total vindication. He gives this crazy incoherent speech. According to Mitt Romney, the other Republicans applaud him like a victorious gladiator, even though he's (laughs) Crazy and incoherent. He leaves
0: the room, and what do these guys do? They burst out laughing. Yeah. That was the best. Yeah. It's what you always knew they yeah. really thought. You know.
2: You know, in some ways, I have to say, Romney is like the reverse of what you usually say about your favorite rock bands. I actually prefer his his later work than
0: his <laughs> early work. <laughs> That's, well. I do think there's like a there's a sort of a reporter's kind of guidebook in this. In that, if you're going to do an access story, go for someone who career is at a dead end (laughs) and someone Mm -hmm. who is so isolated and lonely that you are the only person he can talk to. McKay Coppens went to his house and they had, you know, dinner like at least once a week and just sat there. And the rest of the time, Romney was, you know, watching Ted Lasso on TV. Eating
1: frozen salmon fillets (laughs) (laughs) and putting them on a a hamburger bun. Perfect subject for tell-all. Lisa Murkowski, by the way, was very
0: upset (laughs) about that. I
1: noticed that she actually weighed in on that. (laughs) She did. She gave him the salmon, but then she was like, no, you're
0: not supposed to eat it like that. (laughs) Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. Hi, Susan. Hi, Evan. Hey, Jane. So great to see you in person. Hey, guys. So this week, Congress came back from its summer recess, and the House wasted no time getting back to business. And by business, I mean utter chaos. At the center of all this drama is Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On Tuesday, he announced an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. But the move seems transparently political. McCarthy's trying to appease hard-right Republicans who have been agitating for draconian spending cuts and other impossibilities. His reward for this? Those same members turn around and threaten to oust him as Speaker and maybe even shut down the government. Is there any logic behind these politically destructive moves? And why do the inner workings of the Republican Party look so much like one toddler tantrum after the next? And what does all this chaos mean for President Biden, Donald Trump, and 2024? Let's start with McCarthy's decision to launch an impeachment investigation against President Biden. Evan, What are the reasons Republicans are giving for investigating Biden?
2: Well, honestly, it's a little bit like a sort of Mad Libs scenario where they've just sort of left that blank. They really (laughs) haven't said exactly what it is that this is based on. I mean, to be precise, when Kevin McCarthy announced this thing on Tuesday, what he said was that this was an impeachment inquiry into President Biden's involvement with his family's business dealings. But here's the key quote, right? He said, taken together, these allegations paint a picture of of a culture of corruption. Now, the keen listener of the political scene will notice that the word in there was allegations, not evidence. Uh, That is a big distinction. And the truth is they don't have, at this point, evidence. And I think we need to be clear and, and sober about that. And just to give you one example, Of What they don't have, you know, they had built up for weeks this anticipation that Devin Archer, who was Hunter Biden's former associate, that he was going to be the guy who who brought the goods. But when he testified in July uh, before the House Oversight Committee, what he said, and he was asked very directly, are you aware of any wrongdoing by Vice President Biden? And Archer said, no, I'm not aware of any. So at this point, it is allegations. It is not evidence.
0: You know, it seems to be the other squishy word in that statement was culture. (laughs) Is culture actually a crime ever? I mean, come on. I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. I don't know. Susan, um, McCarthy did this about face, didn't he? He said he was not going to launch an impeachment inquiry unless the House had a vote on it. And then he went ahead and did it anyway, without the vote. Explain what happened here.
1: (laughs) Well, it didn't have anything really to do with Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or anything. What it had to do with was, of course, McCarthy's own conference and his incredible weakness as a speaker. That's been one of the major political dynamics in Washington ever since Republicans took back the House majority, but without really enough votes to make it a governing majority. And because of that slim five seats, remember the 15 ballots it took for McCarthy uh, to get elected, he's essentially now being held hostage. You could argue he's a more or less willing hostage of the most— <laughs> Most kind of extreme far-right Trumpist factions inside the House Republican Conference, they are agitating for two parallel but different things. One is the impeachment of Joe Biden. And, you know, you have Jim Jordan, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, and uh, others— pushing very hard on that front. At the same time, you have an even larger group inside the Republican conference that is pushing very hard on spending cuts, and they essentially are using, once again, this play. We've seen Republicans do it before. The government funding runs out on September 30th. Congress, once again, it hasn't done its basic work of passing appropriations bills to fund the different agencies of government. When the funding runs out, there's a large group in the House Republican conference that wants really wants to have a government shutdown because they think it's a way of scoring political points. Uh, And already they basically said, if you're seeking to distract us with this impeachment inquiry, we still want a government shutdown. Amazingly telling quote here, and I just, all week long, I I wrote some of my column about it because it's so revealing. Uh, An anonymous Senate Republican greeted with this fact set, told the Hill newspaper, you know, maybe Kevin thinks he's just giving these guys their binky and uh, <laughs> it'll distract them uh, and soothe them out of having a government shutdown. Well, guess what? The toddler caucus, not soothed by the binky. And so here we are. We now have an impeachment inquiry. And it's one of those deals where once you unleash something like this, guys, you just you can't put right. it back in the box. This this thing is happening. It's barreling down the road. I think we have to assume that it is likely Uh, even if improbable and without evidence that it is likely now to result in Joe Biden's impeachment. And we're still looking at the real prospect of a government shutdown.
0: Uh, Unbelievable. I mean, like, so if you step back and try to figure out if the if the mm-hmm. toddler caucus is having a tantrum, who's daddy? I mean, <laughs> I mean, is it? I guess I'm wondering who's really driving this thing. It's I've, Trump, right? Yeah, I just I think you
2: exactly. I mean, I'll give you I'll give you one example. I mean, I mentioned earlier Devin Archer's testimony. I mean, if you look at the emails that Trump was sending out from the Trump campaign, here was one that said Hunter's ex business partner Devin Archer could blow the lid off Joe Biden's phony claims of innocence. This is at the core of their campaign strategy. So in the end, it's not really that uh, obscure. I mean, that they've sort of laid it all out there. And I think as Susan so rightly described, you have what is essentially a kind of insurrection caucus. I mean, there is a group, the people who were the primary challengers to Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker, uh, there was you know, 20 of them who voted against it and 12 of them are people, remember, who denied the results of the 2020 election. That is the core dynamic, I think, that is that is driving this. And McCarthy dug his own grave when he made all kinds of ludicrous concessions to them that he would never be able to satisfy.
0: Right. The, the, biggest, caucus, the, the biggest concession yeah.
1: that McCarthy made was to basically offer himself up as a willing hostage. And so what he agreed mm. to do, which was basically to allow just a single member— to push for uh, a procedural maneuver called a motion to uh, vacate, the, vacate chair. the chair. And now you have a single member, Matt Gates from Florida, who is, uh, you know, a provocateur, uh, a self-styled uh, uber-Trumpist, and he has been a longtime enemy <laughs> of McCarthy's for reasons that are quite obscure, but McCarthy claims has to do with an, an ethics investigation of Gates. Um Gates has threatened to go to the floor and every single day bring one of these essentially motions to unseat the speaker. And once his impeachment play didn't work, right, so McCarthy announces on Tuesday when Congress comes back from its long summer recess, boom, he surprises everybody by going ahead, flip-flopping and saying, I'm going to unilaterally as speaker open this impeachment inquiry. Matt Gates immediately goes on the floor and he says, "Sorry, not good enough, <sighs> not good enough, Kevin. Uh, it's quote a baby step." I, I think he he must have had the toddler uh, <laughs> analogy in mind. And McCarthy, by the end of the week, is spitting mad, and he has a closed door conference meeting on Thursday with the Republican Conference. It's their first day back together in a closed-door meeting since the summer recess, and he's literally reduced to dropping F-bombs on his members. And he's saying, you know, you think you're going to scare me?
0: Bring the effing motion. Bring the effing motion. Can I just say one quick moment on on the Mm. wonderful New Yorker coverage of this, which is that Um, If you read the New York Times, all you got to hear was you just learned there was an expletive. If you read the Washington Post, you saw something, a reference to maybe an F-bomb. If you read Susan Glasser's column, you get the – you know, unedited full version of what was said because we, we treat
2: our readers like adults. You know, exactly, you know, we they think can you can handle, handle it.
0: the truth over there at the just, newspaper. Just want to say we use the real
1: words. See, I actually there. thought Jane that so. you were going to bring up another <laughs> aspect of the New Yorker's coverage this week because the New Yorker uh, article that I've seen circulating the most widely to explain this situation on the Hill, and and it, by the way, it does perfectly encapsulate the situation. It was. One of the humor columns run in the New Yorker, <laughs> and the headline essentially said, uh, "Republicans demand that Joe Biden explain to them why they're impeaching him." <laughs> Andy Borowitz, thank God for Andy <laughs> of Borowitz. Course it was Absolutely. Barwick. Well, listen. And by the way, it's actually course. a good question. Why are they impeaching him? I know Evan, you've given some examples. I, honestly, it's like with Hillary and Benghazi.
0: Nobody really knows. Okay, it's like Biden and Hunter Biden, but. What is it that he did again? But, you know, the investigation is the end in itself. It doesn't actually require any substance because the whole thing is to damage Biden politically. And you can tell that from what precipitated this that I thought was very interesting was an intimate dinner between uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump. And what did they talk about? How important it was to— impeach Biden, and she promised him, she promised Trump, who she adores, that she would deliver a long and excruciating impeachment. That The torture of it is 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 the end. That's all it is. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether there's actually a reason for it, I think.
1: Well, and actually Trump gave an interview to this uh, end uh, in which he suggested that the one is to make Biden suffer, two, of course, is to distract from Trump's own criminal legal situation uh, and his metastasizing court cases that are essentially going to become the entire sum and substance of his campaign for president in 2024. And then the third is is actually very Trumpy, and that's the quote that he gave in the interview with Megyn Kelly. They did it to me, and had they not done it to me, I think, and nobody officially said this, but I think had they not done it to me, then I'm very popular in
2: the region, you know, they like me and I like them, the Republican Party. Uh, perhaps you wouldn't have it being done to them.
1: Yeah, it's revenge. Revenge. Donald Trump Mm -hmm. always says the quiet part out loud. Well,
0: Um, but they did it to me. Talk about a toddler. When we come back, we'll take a look at how this relates to Biden, Trump and 2024. I have heard from someone who was advising and dealing with Trump that a very toddler-like way of dealing with him. The guy said that what he would do is, like with a toddler, when you wanted him to do what you wanted him to do, you give him choices. So he feels like he's in command, but he's not. So instead of saying to the toddler, you're going to put on your shirt, you say, here's a red shirt, here's a blue shirt, you get to choose. And this was actually one of the major figures on Wall Street described this as how he dealt with Trump.
2: Well, I think, I mean, even in the midst of all this absurdity, there is the reality now that the Biden administration is facing an impeachment inquiry. And I think, you know, you've seen the way that they've responded to this is that they're trying to balance the fact that there is an element of total absurdity here. I mean, Kamala Harris's statement was that this is a this is political theater with bad actors, and yet at the same time, and I and you, we've we've already talked about this a bit. There is always the risk that when you open an inquiry like this, you just never know where it's going to go. So it is a one of the things that they're doing, I think, that the White House is doing, which is which is important. Is you know they're basically trying to signal to the press that this. You simply can't cover this the way we would cover a normal impeachment, you know, as they're saying, look, a lot of these allegations have not only been disputed, they've been disproved. And I think Biden is being pretty blunt about it. He says, look, I think the reason they're trying to impeach me is because they want to shut down the government. Um, But. Uh, the fact is, they knew this was coming. We knew this was coming. For at least a year, it's been obvious that this is what this Republican majority in the House, this was the closest they were going to come to a consensus on anything.
1: Yeah, and Evan, I think you've raised a really important point because uh, just even the phrase normal impeachment really struck me there. I, I, unfortunately, what I would argue is that actually this is the new normal for impeachment and that uh, one of the real risks and problems of our current polarized era in American politics is that it's inconceivable that you could really have a situation where any Senate would convict any president of of either party of wrongdoing, that we're just so innately partisan and divided uh, that you're not going to have a situation where uh, it's conceivable to get the more than 60 votes that are required to achieve a Senate conviction. In that way, it means that the House has turned this into essentially just another tool in the partisan toolkit because the stakes are low, right? They understand that they're not going to get a conviction. And by the way, Senate Republicans this week, how did they greet the news of this new impeachment inquiry by the House? very senior Senate Republicans were on the record, making it very clear they're not interested in this inquiry. They're very unlikely to vote for it. They don't think the House has achieved a threshold of actual evidence that would be warranting to pursue this. And so the Senate, I think, has already sent a clear message. First of all, it's a Democratic majority Senate. Second of all, key Republicans have already joined Democrats in casting doubt upon the legitimacy of the House impeachment inquiry. And so then you have a sort of already irresponsible House radical fringe that says, well, great, why not? Let's go for it. Let's tar him. Let's use it as a tool of politics. I worry that that is the new normal for impeachment in this country, that it's removed as a meaningful constraint on a president because the ultimate sanction that the founders envisioned, which was removing a president, is essentially hard to conceive of right now. And yet it's just going to become a
0: constant Cycle of tit for tat retaliation and and revenge, as I Donald mean, Trump no, put you're, it. You're right, absolutely, Susan. I mean, and this was, you know, the only mechanism. This was the check on that on the presidency on a rotten president. And so this means if if the check is meaningless, this is in some for this is why we are watching this trial unfolding, these many trials unfolding of Donald Trump, because the the Congress failed to do its job. I totally agree with you. This is why we're going to see it. You know, it's been completely defined down to just one more campaign tool, basically political tool. Although I do oh. also
1: want to, Evan, and I'm curious what what you guys think as well, I do want to flag... The other aspect that you of the point you just made, Evan, which is mm. that it is actually serious for Biden, right? So mm-hmm. the bottom line is the political context, the political moment in which this action is occurring might be the short-term issue of the the government shutdown that McCarthy is seeking to head off, and and it looks like not necessarily successfully. But the process will now unfold. It will unfold after September 30th, and whatever happens with the government shutdown, and basically at least. Very likely until the end of 2023, as the presidential campaign begins to unfold in earnest, Republicans will use the institutional mechanisms of the House of Representatives essentially to launch an attack. Designed to undermine Joe Biden, to raise questions about him, to create a sort of equivalence between uh, uh, the very questionable dealings. And we have to say that. I think it's really important. We did a whole episode on this, but it's very important to say that these are questionable and, uh, at a minimum, very. Inappropriate looking uh, efforts to leverage the Biden family name by his son Hunter Biden when right, Joe Biden wait, wait, was the vice wait, wait. president. Okay, but
0: I'm just going to jump in there because <laughs> I do think you can certainly. I think it's almost incontrovertible that 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 uh, Hunter Biden did some things that that smell bad, okay, and look bad, like many presidential offspring and and relatives. Um, but they're really, I think it can't be said enough. There's zero. Evidence showing that Joe Biden did anything wrong here, other than getting on the phone and right. But remember to he the, denied that first name. Okay, but okay, the whistle- they denied
1: any contact at so, first. So well, because we don't know yet what we don't know. But of course, it's now in a tainted political just, environment. I, right? I just
0: think the press has to be really careful not to get drawn into this thing, uh, acting as if there is something there or there may be something there when so far there's nothing there except a father getting on the phone and according to their best whistleblower or engaging in what were called niceties on the phone, and and his son passes the phone around. Okay, right. so the son is described as, as trying to give the illusion of access, was the quote from the yeah. whistleblower. It's an illusion. There is no actual, you know, quid pro quo, bribery situation. There's nothing right. there. I don't think anyone
1: right. in this conversation, just to be clear, is seeing that. Yeah, okay? I mean, so, so just to be know, clear, the goal is to keep this alive and it will be kept alive now institutionally as a discussion that is not necessarily helpful to Biden. You know, the Biden people, uh, Evan, this week are giving kind of the most positive spin on this and sort of saying, oh, well, actually, it's going to be good for Biden because it's going to show the extremism of the House Republicans. Previous yeah. impeachments have backfired when the House Republicans went after and impeached Bill Clinton. That right. was bad for them right. politically. By the way, it, impeachment number one wasn't necessarily bad for Donald Trump. Do you do you agree with that um, sort of positioning that that? The the White House has right now?
2: I think there's a couple of things. I think we have to be almost on every reference. We have to attach the clear point that we in the uh, in the press must not be drawn into precisely the game that they are creating here, that that the Republicans have established, which is that simply devoting time to these allegations that just doing so is is really a sort of a disservice to the democratic infrastructure that this process was designed to be a part of. I think that, and this gets back to something that you, we were talking about a moment ago, what would eventually arrest this pattern of sort of, impeachment vengeance back and forth, tit for tat, what we know is that the only thing in Washington that really corrects behavior is losing and actually losing politically, losing electorally. And if you look historically, it is a fact that the Clinton impeachment, which was generally regarded by the public at the time, as over the top, unnecessary, not satisfying the standard of high crimes and misdemeanors, it did actually produce a backlash against Republicans. I mean the only person who resigned as a result of that effort was the person who brought the impeachment Newt Gingrich, Speaker of the House. I think it's also worth remembering that in the midterm election in 98, which was after the impeachment began, that the president's party sort of defied the usual patterns and it picked up five House seats. So the Biden White House is not wrong to be going into this saying that they think that the public fundamentally is going to recoil from this kind of political um, agony being thrust upon us for what does not Remotely qualify as the standard that the founders intended for impeachment.
0: I mean, and I think you know, the, one of the key statistics is that there are 18 Republican Congresspeople up for re-election in districts that were carried by Biden, and those those Republicans in Biden districts may find that their seats are in jeopardy because of this kind of thing. I, you know, the, so it 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 is a political risk but the thing is if you i think if you sort of stand back and look at it it's a gambit that works beautifully for one person and that is Donald Trump. He's the one driving the vengeance tour, and he wants to equalize the situation in terms of the corruption picture, and he wants to tar Biden. This is The House is doing his bidding, yeah. um, and maybe even at their own peril.
1: Well, that's an, a really interesting point, Jane. I would say, if you pull back and you look, we this isn't even just a sort of a purely theoretical question at this point, because, in fact— Donald Trump and the Republicans have been talking about Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden for for actually years now. That was actually the subject in many ways of Trump's first impeachment was because he wanted to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden to use against Joe Biden in the 2020 election four years ago. And what we can say from the evidence that that is substantial at this point on the politics of this is that voters don't seem to care very much. There is no evidence really to suggest that the Hunter Biden problems have been the major reason for the qualms of Joe Biden. However, okay, so and now I'm going to put a gigantic uh-huh. however. <laughs> the other big thing that's been going on this week is what I would call a, a genuine uh kind of semi-public panic on the part of Democrats about Biden's political situation headed into what looks like a rematch with Donald Trump. And it's not because of Hunter Biden. It's not because of impeachment. It goes back to a theme that we've discussed many times on this show, which is uh, the perceptions about Biden's age and his ability to keep doing the job into a second term at which he would be 86 at the end of it. And As much as the White House has sort of complained that this is an unfair narrative, that there's no evidence, that Donald Trump is also really old and, you know, senile and why aren't you complaining about him? As much as we can stipulate to all of that, the bottom line is that politically speaking right now for Democrats, it's a problem not because of Biden hating Republicans, but because Democrats themselves and independents, the people that Joe Biden needs If he's going to win a second term, they are very concerned about this issue. And something like two-thirds of Democrats in some polls say that Biden is too old to serve a second term. And so what you've seen is a few kind of establishment figures here in Washington going public with these qualms right now. It's almost too late. The filing deadlines are almost upon us. October, right? For 2024, exactly. But you saw David Ignatius in The Washington Post, Charlie Cook, who— I cut my teeth with uh, he's, a, you know, the sort of original nonpartisan election observer, both of them coming out and and simply saying just as a matter of politics, they think that Biden should step aside before it's too I late. I mean,
0: it is, I think it's such an interesting thing to watch how this plays out. It's obviously been, well, as as, as you called, I lo- you had a great term in your column, which was Anecdata, anecdotes that are somewhat data-like data points. Um, uh, I'm using that. Um, But but I I don't know about you, Evan, too. But clearly, Susan and I have returned to Washington from various, you know, a summer getaway here and there to discover that the entire Washington establishment is 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 talking about this and obviously they've all been off yeah. in their summer places you know brewing over it and um you know i mean you yeah. get a little pushback from people like david axelrod who've just sort of said deal with it come on you know like get over it he's the candidate there's not going to be another one why are the democrats always bedwetters why don't they protect and fight for their own but um, right. but you can see that well, the wise heads of the washington establishment are now raising these questions in public
2: well, it, what it comes down to is actually sort of an interesting procedural and uh, legal question. I mean, as you say, there's filing deadlines coming up. But I I wondered, and, and Susan, you'll have a sense of the history here. If you go back, for instance, to LBJ, I'm curious, it was later in the process, was it not that LBJ backed out? So what's different about then and now?
1: Well, you know, it is interesting you say that. I was actually just having a conversation this week with our big boss, uh, uh, David Remnick, and we we couldn't remember exactly when I looked it up. Uh, and it, it was very oh. much, much later, it was March. Right, it was right. early March thought. of uh, 1968 that, that LBJ surprised F-K everybody, right. and so and of course that primary that we all remember as this historic thing only lasted, in effect, from March until the tragic events of June 1968 when RFK was assassinated. But the bottom line is it's almost irrelevant in terms of political history because the structure of American presidential campaigns has just basically fundamentally changed since then. And the the, the truth is, is that it's not just about the money that's required to launch a, a campaign or the infrastructure, but actually the filing deadlines. Because we have such a robust primary uh, and caucus schedule now in both the Democratic and the Republican parties. The first one is Nevada in uh, uh, not quite mid-October coming up for the Democrats. And uh, also because it's perceived at least that if Biden were to step aside, that it wouldn't be an automatic coronation of Vice President Kamala Harris. And what that means is you would have potentially an open primary with quite a large field of Democrats who would get in, but many of them wouldn't necessarily have the enormous kind of name identification and celebrity factor and being known commodities to Democrats around the country. And so in that sense, you might want uh, as long and robust a primary Contest as you could muster in a scenario like this, but I wonder though when I read those pieces and and we all read them, was there a little bit of a kind of a last gasp, like just for the record, folks? I'm saying this isn't a really good idea, but we're, yeah, we're headed of there anyway. It's
0: all these all these people self protecting; they don't want to go in with Biden because now they they're he looks so shaky in the polls. They're saying, "I warned you! I warned you! I was so smart!" You know, I mean, and there's the polls so much are of that bad. In,
1: in, I will say this right now: sure, but, most of Uh, the surveys, independent surveys that we're talking about, and, and national polls at this point in time, we can all stipulate are, you know, not necessarily worth all that much, but look at the trajectory. They essentially show Biden and Trump tied right now. And largely, again, to my point, it's because of continued ambivalence or concern among Democrats and independents who haven't sort of come home to Biden to the same degree that Republicans are rallying around Trump. But in 2020, There was never a single moment in that long campaign in which Biden uh, and Trump were running this close. And I think that's kind of the warning indicator light for Democrats.
2: Yeah, I think the question that's sort of staring us in the face is basically, does Biden stay at this position over the course of the next 13 months or does something improve? And I I think you have to be. Precise about looking at the history here. Remember, he looked terrible before the South Carolina primary. We all know that story. But it, it's worth really remembering. I mean, he did so poorly in New Hampshire that people said, my God, he's got to run out of town before they even announce the results, which is what he did. But underlying that fact, there was, in the end, uh, a, a Democratic Party that was willing to coalesce around him because. He was the best of the bunch as far as what they thought they could do in that primary. I think there are two big things that are basically up against him. One is inflation. There's still this sort of hangover totally. effect of what of, of what that did to the voters. People are sort of scorched by it. And that's probably going to get better for him over the course of the next year. The age issue is not going to get better for him. But the truth is, if he ends up running against a Donald Trump, who is, for all the reasons that we know, um, a pretty complicated and damaged candidate, he ends up looking more and more obviously uh, positioned uh, to beat Trump And I think you can't leave out the fact that this is also going to be an election that comes down to abortion. And so in the end, yes, Biden is not the candidate that people wanted here. uh, But he is also the person who is likely to be in the position where Democrats say, I do not have the option of staying home. What percentage
1: chance do you guys think? And I know I'm putting all of us on the spot here. What percentage chance do we think that Biden will not actually be on the ballot next year?
0: I mean, I, I honestly think it, it the only thing that would intervene would be some kind of health crisis. If the party poobahs were going to get him to step aside or if he wanted to step aside, he would have by now. And I don't honestly see, you know, you could sort of get nibbles from Gavin Newsom, who seems to keep, you know, trying to put his face on television and debate DeSantis. But um, I'd say Biden's on the ticket unless, you know, there's some kind of terrible so, health problem. So not zero, but but low. Evan, do you agree?
2: Yeah, I think – look, I think the fact that we have so many elements that are intruding on the race, whether it's the possibility of an impeachment vote, a government shutdown, all of these things are just really sort of beyond the usual measurement of our instruments for assessing politics. It it almost makes it the safe bet to say that something is going to change. On the other hand, and I think this is the core fact – This is not casual. Joe Biden is not running for president because he thinks, well, let's just see what happens. He really does believe that he is the person in the best position to win. And so something's going to have to change fundamentally in his calculus, meaning in the conversations with the people he really trusts who are right around him. That at this point shows no sign of changing. Okay,
0: Susan, we will put you on the spot, too.
1: (laughs) It's your turn. I I, I agree basically with your analysis, but, you know, I'll give it a number. Let's just say 15 percent, you know. So basically the overwhelming odds at this point are that Biden is the guy. But let's say there's a 15 percent chance that, you know, lightning strikes, he gets an illness, something happens. It's definitely not zero. It's definitely not zero.
0: Okay. on that note. The suspense is killing us. Um, (laughs) Wait for next week and we will have more. (laughs) This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.